human trafficking weakens democracies. It thrives on corruption. We see kind of human trafficking networks recruiting corrupt public officials um, and kind of continuing to kind of erode these, these democratic institutions. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Amanda and Indy. Millions of people worldwide are affected by the human trafficking crisis, which has only been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we will cover what human trafficking or modern slavery is and what makes people vulnerable. We will also discuss the international security risks posed by human trafficking, including how it can be used by terrorist organizations and oppressive regimes. Finally, we will examine just how trafficking has evolved to make it so difficult to disrupt. Joining us today is Jamila Biggio. Jamila Biggio is a leading expert on human rights and gender equality and their relationship with national security and global prosperity. Currently, she's a senior fellow on women and foreign policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, she was director for human rights and gender on the White House National Security Staff, served in the White House Council on Women and Girls, and advised First Lady Michelle Obama and Second Lady Dr. Jill Biden on gender equality globally. Jamila, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you all. To start us off, I'd like to ask you if there's an accepted definition of human trafficking and if it's different from other terms such as modern slavery. So that's a great question. Uh, There is a set definition for human trafficking, uh, less of a set definition for modern slavery. So what we see with human trafficking is that this is an egregious human rights violation that involves the use of force fraud, or coercion for the purposes of exploitation. This includes, for example, labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Uh, We see the U.S. government using the terminology of trafficking in persons and modern slavery as interchangeable umbrella terms, but other global actors use modern slavery to include a broader swath of exploitative situations um, from which a person cannot refuse or leave. And these include forced labor and human trafficking, but also situations of forced marriage and other practices that are tantamount to slavery. So you did mention, you know, labor trafficking, commercial sex trafficking, forced marriage. Are those the root causes of human trafficking? So beyond those, those are how we see trafficking situations occur. Um, But the root causes of trafficking are broader than that. They are issues of poverty, social marginalization, migratory status. So these relate to um, factors that make people vulnerable to trafficking in the first place. Um, We also see uh, trafficking fueled by an institutional environment that enables trafficking to persist. And these are issues like a weak criminal justice system, weak corporate regulations uh, that allow um, traffickers to to act and to profit from um, uh, taking advantage of people's vulnerability. Um, And these combine to um, kind of permit individual traffickers and networks of traffickers to continue to exploit human trafficking 
to their uh, financial benefit. And this is one of the most lucrative uh, criminal enterprises producing um, some estimates $150 billion annually. So I want to learn a little bit more about kind of the strategies that traffickers use to lure these vulnerable populations into these um, kind of like illicit network economies. So I was wondering, like, what are the strategies that they use? And like, is there a kind of most common situation under which someone becomes a victim to human trafficking? Yeah, so let's take forced labor as an example. One of the weak links in the labor world is that of labor recruiters. Um, So we see um, labor recruiters taking advantage of the economic vulnerability of people um, who are desperate for work. And labor recruiters will, um, in in many instances, um, or in some instances, can charge exorbitant fees to place people desperate for work with an employer. Um, And sometimes this is in a a migratory situation where someone is traveling, um, leaving their country and traveling to a a destination country to work. Um, And they've now been charged an exorbitant fee for that job opportunity. And they end up getting stuck in um, a labor trafficking situation or in a debt bondage arrangement um, where... Uh, the worker then receives either low or no no wages in order to pay off their recruitment debt. So this is something that um, anti-trafficking policy is trying to target and to um, make sure that uh, no governments, no um, uh, uh, contractors, no corporations allow their recruiters to charge any exorbitant, sorry, any recruitment fees. Um, and these recruitment fees are all absorbed by the corporations or the, um, the government and its contractors uh, so that none of these fees fall on the backs of the, um, of the individuals themselves, uh, the employees themselves. Um, we also see recruiters concealing the nature of a job from workers. Um, So in some cases, for example, we see um, women uh, traveling overseas for a promised job in the hospitality industry only to find themselves held captive in domestic servitude. Uh, So just identifying another way in which um, fraudulent labor recruiters uh, can um, contribute to trafficking situations. Um, and, and these are, you know, in cases of migrant workers, um, you know, we often see them then afraid to leave abusive situations um, because they um, do not want to be arrested or deported. And in some cases, you know, their traffickers, their exploiters um, are telling them that if they leave the house, they will be arrested and, and deported and so are very much um instilling this fear in order to help uh, allow them to control uh, the trafficking victims and and ensure that they do not leave the the trafficking situation in which they are caught. Um, So that's kind of one one trajectory that we see in which which trafficking victims are 
are lured and, and become stuck in trafficking situations. We also, you know, in the 21st century, we see more and more um, trafficking migrating online. Um, so certainly if we take the situation of sex trafficking, we see more and more online sexual exploitation occurring, um, including on hidden platforms. And, you know, the, the demand has spiked even more in the last year as the COVID-19 crisis has, has pushed even more interactions online. Okay, so my follow-up question was, we've talked about the broad term of human trafficking, um, and we've mentioned sex trafficking, labor trafficking. And so I was wondering um, if there's like an estimated percent breakdown or just like the, in terms of like what percent of victims of human trafficking fall into those different categories? Yeah, so um, there, the UN does have data on the number of detected victims of different forms of trafficking. Um, with a note that, first off, this is a hidden crime, so many victims go undetected. And an additional note that um, in many countries, um, there may be kind of systems in place, however they are, they are tracking the issue of human trafficking, there may be systems in place that bias the system, the the tracking system to identify more of one type of victim than another. Um, so, for example, if the law enforcement teams working on trafficking are all working out of the vice departments, they're going to be more likely to find sex trafficking than to find labor trafficking. So, with all that as a note, they. Um, uh, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime has actually just released their latest report analyzing where cases of human trafficking are detected around the world. Um, and what they looked at, this is 2018 data, they just released it, but this is kind of all the data that they collected in, in 2018. So what they found there was that um, of all the detected victims that year, 42% were um, women trafficked for ex sexual exploitation. 16% were girls trafficked for sexual, sexual exploitation. 11% were men trafficked for forced labor. 7% were women trafficked for forced labor. Um, and then there was a, a bucket of 20% for a whole variety of other forms of trafficking, um, trafficking of boys, uh, and girls for forced labor. Um, we do see a smaller percentages, percentage of cases of um, individuals uh, exploited for their organs, um, feeding into the organ trafficking industry. So just to say, you know, there are other forms of trafficking that are I, um, tracked and identified, but that occur at, at lower rates than, than the bigger buckets of, of sex trafficking and, and forced labor. Um, and then this is distinct from kind of modern slavery, where we see forced marriage occurring, for example, where the International Labor Organization has identified over 15 million victims um, of forced marriage around the world. Um, so this is, you know, something we see you know, I think an important piece as we look at kind of the global snapshot of this issue is first off that human trafficking occurs in almost every country in the world. Uh, so that's, you know, there's sometimes a myth that it, you know, only occurs in, um, in emerging economies. But in fact, you know, there's 
uh, sadly, you know, plenty of human trafficking occurring here in the United States. Um, there's also a myth that human trafficking um, occurs mostly across national borders. Um, and, you know, again, we certainly see many trafficking victims exploited within their countries of residence. Um, so even as we kind of look at this breakdown of um, sex trafficking and labor trafficking globally, it's important to note that a lot of this is happening you know, in the United States, in Europe, in addition to across Africa, you know, truly uh, uh, across, you know, Asia, Latin America, truly uh, around the world. And plenty of it happens just within um, within countries of residence. Yeah. So just to pick up on the last part of your answer, um, I was just wondering, are there specific regional differences in how and why human trafficking occurs? And are there trends sort of that differ by region or by continent? Yeah, so uh, at the regional level, the root causes of why people are trafficked, that's pretty consistent. So looking at poverty, social marginalization, situations that make people desperate to accept risky opportunities. Um, But we do see some diversity regionally in the prevalence of different forms of trafficking among detected victims. So in in North America and Europe, for example, more victims are detected in situations of sexual exploitation, whereas across Africa, South Asia, Eastern Europe, for example, more victims are detected in situations of forced labor. So we see a lot of research done and writing on how you know human trafficking affects the global community as a whole, especially from yourself. So I'm wondering how does human trafficking affect you know international security and our global economy? Yeah, so we are actually working on a report right now um, to uh, expand on exactly this issue um, and to lay out exactly how trafficking is not is important as a human rights violation um, on its own accord, but also for the role that it plays in undermining national security interests, in limiting economic growth, and in impeding sustainable development. Um, and in that way, you know, as an issue is is important you know, on its on its own ground, but also because of the direct effect that it has on global interests in prosperity, in security, and in in sustainable development. Um, so, breaking these down a little bit, let's look at on the national security side. So, here we see that human trafficking can fuel corruption and criminal networks. I already talked about the fact that it produces $150 billion in profit every year for uh, human trafficking networks, criminal networks. Um, It can also, uh, it's also kind of used by terrorists and armed groups, not just as for financial benefit, but also to generate recruits um, to augment their operations to enlarge their military capabilities. So this is where we see terrorist and armed groups use trafficking victims as combatants, as spies, as cooks, as uh, forced wives, you know, where they where they actually, you know, take Yazidi women and girls as an example, ISIS um, 
traffic them, kidnap them, um, and then use them um, to recruit additional ISIS fighters um, with the promise of women and girls as as their essentially as um, in situations of sexual slavery. Um, And that's talking about terrorists and armed groups. We also see repressive governments using human trafficking, particularly forced labor, um, as a tool to circumvent sanctions. North Korea is a prime example where they have sent um, you know, 100,000 laborers to work in forced labor abroad, um, generating revenue for them that, you know, has allowed them to, um, you know, keep their, their governments afloat and to, um, you know, avoid the sanctions that, that others have, have put in place. Um, the other way which we see traffic, human trafficking affecting national security is where it undermines international cooperation, international missions. And this is, you know, where we see militaries, NATO, peacekeeping forces being implicated, including in um, in, in their presence, uh, kind of contributing to sex, the sex trafficking industry. On the economic growth side, this is where we see human trafficking um, uh, imperiling the stability of the global financial system. Um, it means that the profits of human trafficking are privatized, but the costs are fall on the backs of, of government and taxpayers. Um, you know, the costs of taking care of trafficking victims from healthcare services to law enforcement. Um, it means that, that the, uh, that there's kind of an inefficient, um, use of, of capital, you know, enterprises, corporations that tolerate human trafficking that allow for forced labor in their supply chains, for example, are, have a competitive advantage. It's cheaper for them to not pay people um, and not to protect uh, and, and respect labor rights. Um, and in a system that doesn't um, penalize them for doing so, um, then were, you know, it's in turn offering them a competitive advantage over corporations that are investing in making sure that their um, suppliers and supply chain um, protects labor rights at, at all levels and, and prevents human trafficking at all levels. Um, if we take the issue of uh, child marriage, uh, forced marriage, as, as one example, um, we've actually seen uh Researchers at the International Monetary Fund estimate that if if um, situations of child marriage, which just one form of modern slavery, were eradicated, that it would um, contribute one percent in annual GDP to emerging and developing countries. So incredible economic benefits um, from eliminating this form of of modern slavery, and that relates to kind of the sustainable development argument of this as well, which is that. Uh, human trafficking um, in turn, you know, creates cycles of poverty um, and vulnerability in in um, in communities that uh, destabilize the communities and um, undermine kind of any any investments in in sustainable development uh, in those communities, and that's where we see too that human trafficking weakens democracies. It thrives on corruption. Um, 
And we see kind of human trafficking networks um, recruiting uh, corrupt public officials um, and kind of continuing to kind of erode these these democratic institutions. So it's it's where we also see this relationship between human trafficking, corruption, and democracy. So my next question is kind of touching upon something you talked about earlier, which is this misconception that human trafficking just happens in incredibly poor countries or that it's a simply like transnational issue. So I want to ask to what extent is human trafficking a transnational cross-border issue compared to a domestic issue of people being trafficked within their original country of origin? So human trafficking occurs in almost every country, including the United States. And as we look at the detected victims around the world, most have been trafficked within their own region. So from one neighboring country to another, or even within their own country, you don't have to cross a border to be trafficked. There are also victims who are trafficked from one region of the world to another region. When we look at this segment, the largest numbers of victims are detected in North America and Europe. And when we look at modern slavery more broadly, it's also important to note that migration can make people more vulnerable to being exploited. So migrant workers, for example, make up a quarter of all forced labor victims globally. Just moving on to our next question, um, even though to an extent human trafficking does occur within borders, it is evidently a global problem. So what current global initiatives are there by both states, the UN and NGOs to put an end to human trafficking and how successful have they been? Yeah, so around 20 years ago, um, the Palermo Protocol was passed um, to prevent, suppress and punish trafficking in persons. It was the first international instrument to define human trafficking and it committed ratifying states to preventing and addressing this scourge. So in the last 20 years or so, we have seen an uptick in laws, regulations, policies in place, both at the national level and at regional and multilateral levels um, to to truly um, tackle this scourge. the U.S. as an example, the U.S. passed its Trafficking Victims Protection Act um, also in, in the year 2000 um, with bipartisan support. Um, we've seen in the United States um, a whole slew of, of new policies and programs kind of put in place in, in, in the intervening 20 years um, from White House action, setting up a president's interagency task force to um, the U.S. just came out with a national action plan to combat human trafficking um, domestically. We've seen um, the intelligence community, national, secu- national security community engage more, including with a national intelligence estimate. Um, the USAID has had a strategy to combat human trafficking kind of through a sustainable development lens. Um, its first strategy was put in place in 2012, and a new strategy was just issued last year, or sorry, last month. Um, we've seen uh, efforts on the forced labor side. Uh, Congress has passed a series of of laws and um, closed loopholes to ensure that um, there are stronger 
uh, barriers to uh, the importation of goods, for example, that have been produced with with forced labor. So we now see um, U.S. Custom and, and Border Protection doing more to um, block goods from being imported that have been produced with with forced labor. Um, latest example being a, a broad order blocking goods coming out of China's um, Xinjiang region, kind of in response to. Um, determinations of the extent of of genocide and, and forced labor against the Uyghur population there. Um, so we see kind of again um, a broad, a, a really broad strategy to address sex trafficking, labor trafficking um, in in all of its forms. And a lot of this has been um, uh, done in parallel and in some cases in collaboration with efforts occurring at the international level. Um, so we've seen, for example, on the forced labor side, this this is bolstered by a global movement to promote responsible business conduct. So we've seen the UN issued guiding principles on business and human rights. The International Labor Organization came out with a new protocol in 2014 to tackle forced labor. We've seen the financial sector come up with new tools. Um, the sustainable development goals, when they were passed, included three trafficking-related targets. Uh, the UN Security Council in 2015, you know, for the first time in its history, addressed the issue of human trafficking as a security threat. Uh, so we really do see kind of a growing attention to the issue. Um, now to the question of how effective have these uh, initiatives been? Um, so uh, it's there's been some progress, um, but uh, kind of overall, it is we're very much in in a similar situation. Um, we haven't really seen a downtick in the number of um, trafficking victims detected around the world. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for this. Um, so, you know, but, but primarily, you know, we see kind of there's more laws in place, but there's weak enforcement of those laws. I mean, let's just take, um, uh, you know, cases of, of prosecution. So there's 25 million trafficking victims worldwide. Uh, we've, we found that uh, you know the State Department um, estimated that in 2019 there was fewer than 12,000 prosecutions in the entire world, and uh, the vast majority of these were for sex trafficking. There were very few prosecutions um, for forced labor. Um, we also see that investment um, is limited. So, kind of despite the implications for sustainable development. Um, a new report uh, produced by, by James Cocaine out of um, UN University found that kind of between 2000 and 2017, that uh, kind of overall donor assistance that they analyzed, only $12 was invested per trafficking victim each year. Um, so very, very small investments by development agencies. USAID is actually kind of an exception. They've had um, stronger investments in this issue, though they um, it's still quite limited compared to kind of other uh, other 
freedom related issues that that they address kind of if you think about human trafficking as a as a freedom issue you can compare it to investments in religious freedoms or in other kind of human rights protections um and there's uh you know certainly kind of space to really increase the investment there um on the national security side, uh, we see kind of real gaps in in really identifying this as a as a tool by transnational organizations. Um, so even if you look at um, kind of U.S. policy to address transnational threat, um, you know there's an identification of human trafficking as a tool, but then it's not followed by real. Um, investments or prioritization in in tackling this issue to help kind of undermine and and limit the 150 billion dollar industry that that it is. So you talked about how, despite these massive efforts to address this issue, that some some of the numbers have still stayed the same. And you've mentioned how you know there are weaknesses in enforcement, investment. My question is. Has trafficking also evolved through the years? And is that also um, perhaps another reason why uh, disrupting it is difficult? There, so it's good to get into what, what some of the challenges are. So, I mean, when we look across forced labor and global supply chains, so one of the challenges there is, is um, for corporations to actually invest in having visibility across their entire supply chain. Um, you know, we're talking about complex supply chains with multiple layers of suppliers and subcontractors, um, and it it would require a real investment by corporations by. The U.S. government, for example, if we look at the U.S. government's own contracting and procurement policies um, to actually have visibility across their entire supply chain to ensure that um, that they are doing their due diligence, that all of their suppliers um, are meeting, um, you know, minimum requirements, minimum standards to protect labor rights, to prevent human trafficking. And right now, these systems are, um, you know, are not catching um, all the the situations of of forced labor um, and human trafficking. And I mean, let's take the U.S. government as one example. It was only in in 2019 there was a review um, of a Defense Department, a U.S. military base in Kuwait that identified labor trafficking, um, forced labor on the U.S. base just two years ago. Um, and, you know, it points to weaknesses within of the oversight and incentives of um, financing practices kind of across corporations that that permit um, forced labor to persist. Um, we have to make sure that uh, markets are effectively pricing products. You know, this is another issue of if products are priced so low that, um, you know, it, it disincentivizes, makes it difficult for, for corporations kind of competing in those markets to um, produce the goods with um, while protecting labor rights. Um, you know, and these are issues that we're starting to see investors, you um, 
governments kind of put in place more regulations to make sure that the social costs, um, you know, the full kind of environmental social governance costs, that that the social costs of that include attention to um, trafficking and forced labor and making sure that that is integrated into um, into the market and into regulations for of the market. Uh, so that's, you know, as we look at kind of why is, is labor trafficking persisting? I think, again, you know, a piece of this is, is incentivizing, requiring, you know, a mix of, of the carrots and sticks um, to ensure that, that corporations do their due diligence to ensure that, um, that their supply chains are slavery free. On the internet, you know, this is, um, you know, as we see kind of hidden platforms, um, as we see, uh, um, you know, blockchain and, and other um, uh, kind of financing models evolve, then it is an area where regulation has to um, catch up. And ensure that um, that it's using kind of all of the tech tools um, available to kind of do more than just sting operations to try to kind of take down specific um, uh, trafficking network, but that um, kind of tackling human trafficking online that there's actually kind of a more effective use of um, kind of all of the tech tools uh, available to disrupt trafficking networks, to you know, identify suspicious financial behavior, um, you know, to help aid online victims of, of trafficking. Um, so this is an area where we kind of see more attention shifting to and more more thinking shifting to really kind of looking at at the cyber side of trafficking as well. So kind of shifting gears for our last couple of questions, um, we know that COVID-19 has disproportionately affected kind of those that were already in dire situations. Um, I know earlier in, on the podcast, you mentioned how COVID-19 has shifted some of these trafficking networks online, like you were just talking about. So Perhaps can you like describe to our listeners how the pandemic has affected patterns of human trafficking and its victims? Yeah, so first and foremost, what we've seen with the pandemic is that it is making people who are vulnerable even more vulnerable. Um, so we see that you know people who are um, losing their jobs, who were already, uh, you know, living at at the edge, who have, you know, little ability now to buy food. They have, you know, little access to healthcare, social services. They may be living in countries with very weak, if if um, if even present, you know, social safety nets. Um, their debts are growing, um, and they are, you know desperate for any job and therefore they will they are more likely to accept a potentially fraudulent job offer just to survive um, and this is something you know already we saw that one in four victims of forced labor was a migrant worker um, and you know certainly migrant workers have been hit hard by the pandemic when we've seen, 
um, factories close around the world and, um, you know, travel restrictions put in place, et cetera. So as, as we see, um, you know, as factories um, reopen, as, as uh, travel restrictions were lifted, um, you know, we saw certainly an increased vulnerability of migrant workers, again, now just desperate for a job, um, accepting, accepting, accepting offers that they might not have if they were not were not as desperate and, and in some cases then finding themselves caught and, and stuck in situations of forced labor. Um, we also saw the pandemic um, increase vulnerability for people already in um, trafficking uh, situations or in, in, in potentially uh, kind of um, coercive situations. So, you know, just take kind of situations of domestic workers in in countries um, like Lebanon that function with a kafala system, which is a kind of a, a guest worker recruitment system where there are very few protections and very few um, protections for the workers where they are at, at great risk of exploitation. And as you know, just imagine as as countries were putting in stay-at-home policies, you now have workers in homes that they aren't allowed to leave. Um, they aren't, you know, on their day off, they're being forced to work. They, um, their travel restrictions limiting their ability to return home if that's what they are hoping to do. Um, and so they kind of are, are, are at, at increased risk. Um, we also see, um, you know, I mentioned already online exploitation increasing. This is also for children, as we see children now spending more time online um, you know, for school, for interaction, um, more of that time is being done, you know, perhaps without kind of close observation. So we've seen an increase in online um, sexual exploitation of children. Um, we've also seen um, an increase in enforced marriages of children. And this is something we see often in, in situations of um, of economic distress uh, that, you know, in, in countries where there are already practices around forced marriage, around child marriage, that um, kind of as this is a, it's a negative coping mechanism for families that are now, um, you know, even more uh, desperate um, that they, they turn to, to child marriage um, as a strategy um, you know, in some cases where they may be paid for, you know, usually the girl child that they've now um, placed in into a, a marriage situation um, and use that kind of as a as a coping mechanism for themselves. Um, so this is, you know, these are some of the patterns. And just to say with that, that that, you know, the UN estimated that there would be 13 million more child marriages as a result of COVID-19. Um, so those are kind of some of the varied ways in which we've seen the pandemic increase vulnerabilities to human trafficking. So especially given the changes that the pandemic has made to patterns of human trafficking, and in many cases seems like it has increased instances of human trafficking, what can governments, the private sector, and civil society do to address this problem looking forward? So one thing that the pandemic has also done um, is it has, you know, as governments 
um, and corporations and, and civil society groups are thinking about what does it mean to build back better? Um, there is an opportunity now to um, kind of dream bigger about, um, about systems that would not only kind of benefit all citizens, all, you know, everyone in the country, but would also help to address kind of vulnerabilities to human trafficking. Um, so first, you know, we see that, um, you know, as, as governments are strengthening their social safety nets, you know, to assist their, you know, their communities affected by the pandemic, um, that, you know, this in turn, you know, can help ensure that, you know, communities living on the edge of poverty, um, socially marginalized, kind of at risk of human trafficking in the first place, ensure that they have stronger access to basic services, you know, from healthcare to low interest um, rates and, and credit um, so that they kind of have to help decrease their kind of root vulnerability to trafficking. Um, we also see that, um, you know, as the private sector kind of ramps back up, rehires workers, that, you know, as labor migration kind of increases, that there is an opportunity to modernize labor recruitment systems um, to actually kind of do a better job of checking for corruption and reducing reducing risks of forced labor. Um, and at the same time, kind of for governments to strengthen regulations that they have around um, labor migration and ethical recruitment, kind of ensuring that, um, that there are stronger protections in place um, to help ensure that migration is safer. Um, we also see that, um, uh, you know, there's actually kind of analysis that firms that, you know, corporations that are investing in, that are kind of scoring better on environmental, social, and governance um, indicators are actually performing better. Um, on broader are, are more and um, are, are producing kind of stronger financial returns. Um, and so this is where kind of we see opportunity with capital markets um, to kind of as we look at kind of um, regulations, actions by investors to do more to reward firms that are actually um, kind of addressing and investing in um uh, ensuring that they have um, sustainable supply chains, including supply chains that are slavery free. Um, and then finally, I would say that um, that you know we see governments again, um, kind of with this frame of of building back better, um, thinking about kind of regulations for private industry broadly, thinking about um, importation of goods more broadly, um, you know, that all of that, you know, as they as they think about supply chains more holistically and think about kind of responsible business conduct more holistically, that there's a real opportunity there to ensure that our systems are fairer um, are and, and that do more to kind of protect um, and respect human rights. 
Jamila, it was such an insightful discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to join you all. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.